Welcome and happy Friday. It's October 28th, 2016, and this is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here with Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor and a podcast producer, and Lale Arikoglu, an associate editor for us and um, a newbie to the podcast. So welcome, Lale. Hello. Hi. And we also got Brett on the boards. Brett. Hi, Brett. And you will notice something very quickly about these two guests, which is that they are both British. And that is because today's topic is London. The occasion for this topic is I'm going to London. I'm going in between Christmas and New Year's. And since I am the host and I get to decide what we talk about. You want free travel advice. It's my first, it's my first time ever going to London. I can't believe I'm saying that, uh, but, but it is. And so it also happens that, and this is part of why I'm going, it happens that this is a great time to go to London. It's a great time of year, but it's also just a great time in the history of travel, especially from the United States, but from lots of places to London. So felt like a good thing to talk about. London is also on our list of the best cities in the world from the Reader's Choice Awards. So it's one of the winners. So before we get into the nitty gritty of London, which I need help with, Let's talk a little bit about why now is a good time to go. Well, I was just writing about this. There's a story on the site, which you guys will see, which went live this week. Because of the Brexit vote, whatever position you take on the outcome, whether you wanted it to go ahead or not, there has been one major benefit in its aftermath for American travellers, because the pound hit 168-year low against the dollar. 168 years. Two weeks ago. It is now at around 122.23. Dollars to the pound when before the Brexit vote it hovered between 155 and 160. So you are getting a 20% discount on all the British prices just because of the exchange rate. So the last American that got this good a deal was Henry James, is what you're saying. <laughs> you, can, you can channel your own Henry James. Also remember, because of the way currencies work, at the moment, everything in London and in all of Britain is priced using the pound as it was. Prices will adjust to this exchange rate reasonably quickly, probably in early 2017. So this is the real sweet spot. Great exchange rate cheap prices. So the prices are low relative to even what they would have been within London before. Britain, and Lollican, I'm sure we'll touch on this, Britain is not an exceptionally cheap place to visit right. in general. Right. However, the prices that are being charged in London at the moment were priced when the pound was worth $1.60 in terms of imports, in terms of shopping. Now the pound is worth $1.22. Yeah. So they will adjust the prices in early 2017 to push them up a little because the pound buys less. At the moment, you get this window of discounts. And the other thing, of course, because of the exchange rate being so poor, the transatlantic routes are great cash cows for all the airlines that fly them, British Airways, Virgin, American, United, Delta. And they relied on a a brilliant formula, which was Americans going to Britain, British people coming shopping in America. At the moment, because of the exchange rate, you only have one set of people to travel. So they have to cut the prices enough to fill the planes with Americans. And my premium economy ticket on Virgin in early December, which is usually about $1,600, was $565 round trip. Amazing. That's amazing. Now let's talk a little bit about, or I don't know if you, Lala, had anything that you, any other intel for that. Well, I did just want to know, can you cite an example of something that you can get cheaper over there now? Well, what I think is, for example, Deloitte just announced that 
London is the l cheapest luxury shopping destination in the world, partly because premium products in Britain are actually very competitively priced compared with China, Asia, or even some of the US, especially in fashion. I would suggest that a lot of British brands which export themselves to America, Ted Baker, for example, Reese, clothing brands, are marketed as super premium in America. They're expensive. In London, they're not as premium anyway, and now they're even cheaper. So that would be a, an example. If you're, you need to go shopping in London for that splurge, not electronics, but clothes, right. jewelry, that kind of thing, right. you're getting an incredible deal. What about hotels? What are hotels like? London hotels are competitive, but they're not as good value as, say, Paris, which is one of the best value cities in Europe. I think London's done very well out of Airbnb. That's something that people are really taking advantage of. And if I were looking for a great deal at the moment, I would browse Airbnb. The city's very friendly to Airbnb, right? Very much. Unlike, unlike New York. There aren't any regulations at the moment. But that's also because the configuration of how you live in London is slightly different. It's so much bigger. It's a flat, spread out, large place rather than a compact, congested place. So you're not renting out one apartment in an apartment block full of 50 people where everyone worries about that spare key coming and going. You'll probably know your neighbors. So when they Airbnb, you say to your neighbors, oh, hey, I'm Airbnb for the weekend. And it's just a little, it feels more secure. So I think there's less concerns. Hmm. Okay, so now a different question. Why is this a particularly good time to go? Well, it's Christmas. That's what, yeah. the best time to go to London. Why? Well, you always know the weather's going to be terrible. So you may as well just go in the winter. Cut your losses. And... A very British approach to something. <laughs> just assume it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. In that, it can only go way. up. <laughs> and, um, what I mean, should I expect for, from the weather? Not as cold as New York. Really? Will it snow? It snows no. in a Christmas carol. If it snows, there'll be about an inch on the ground and everything will stop working. Really? They can't handle the snow? No. No one's prepared. Wow. Okay. But it won't be magical. <laughs> it won't be magical. <laughs> Don't it, pray for snow. Yeah. Don't pray for snow. Although you can put a bet on it. There's always a bet if you go to a bookies, you can put money down on whether it's going to snow on Christmas Day. Can you really? Yeah. Is this a thing people do? It's a thing people do. Have you ever done it? My dad does it. And has he won? Never. It, has it, there, <laughs> when you, were, you grew up there, right? Yeah. And so when you were growing up, was this something that he just did every year? Yeah, he would do that. And then he would also, um, when the Grand National comes around. Wow. So his two moments of gambling a year. What's the Grand National? Um, it's the big horse race. The equivalent is... I can't Kentucky, remember. The Kentucky Derby. It's, yeah, it's like the Kentucky Derby. Okay. So he bets on those two things. and those yeah. two th Has he ever won that one? Yes, because when I was seven, he let me pick the horses. Oh, wow. So you're the lucky job. Oh, yeah, no, it was great. We went to John Lewis and I got to pick out Lego. <laughs> See, John Lewis, I love that you mentioned that because there are actually, I think we assume in a globalized world that all the brands are the same, that when you walk down a main street in any major city, it'll be Gap, it'll be Apple ubiquitously. And actually, when you go to London, I think it's startling how many other ubiquitous brands there are that you've never heard of, like John Lewis. What is John Lewis? John Lewis is Middle England's favorite department store. Middle England? Middle England meaning the middle of England, or Middle England meaning like middle class England? Middle, middle. class England. Think, and think the contestants on the Great British Bake Off probably all shop 
at John, at John Lewis. Lewis. Oh, okay. And John Lewis, the reason we love John Lewis is there is no counterpart in America because John Lewis has a price promise that it is never knowingly undersold, which is a wonderfully British way of saying we'll beat anyone's prices. And if you take a bottle of shampoo in and say, take a photograph of a price in a drugstore nearby and say it's cheaper there, they'll give you the money there and then. They give you the difference or they just sell They'll it? give you the difference. Yeah. Wow. Out of the, out of the cash register. Okay. So I got that to look forward to. What else is going to be good about this particular time of year there? Well, I think that segues on nicely to the fact that London has lots of wonderful department stores. You know, you have Selfridges, which I think is, I think it kind of trumps any of the department stores in New York, for example. It has... Oh, no. We're going to get mail about that. <laughs> Just put, 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 I put, eagerly put Lala's await. name on it. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I say this partly because it has one of the world's biggest shoe departments. Oh my. Where you can live out your Carrie Bradshaw shopping dream. Okay, so I definitely don't want to go there because (laughs) I have an Italian wife who likes shoes a lot. Okay. And then you've got, I mean, you have all the lights outside Selfridges or Harrods. And then you have places like Fortnum and Mason, which at Christmas time is a wonderful place to go to the food hall, for example. Fortnum and Mason? Yeah. And it also has this sort of amazing section where it just sells tins upon tins of biscuits with opulent decorations. And it's sort of the most British place you could possibly go. And you can also go there to buy your lobster for dinner. It's Fordham and Mason is like stepping into Downton Abbey's supply store. Oh, no. You walk in there and it feels like it's a hundred years ago and everyone in there is Lord of the Manor. And it is the most magical, surreal experience. And the Ormolu decorated store looks like something from a movie set. I'm sure I'm sure some of the listeners have been to Fordham and Mason. I'd love to hear if you bought things there. We have Selfridges. Fortnum's. Where else would we recommend? Where? What other big department stores? Yeah, that one sounds like a, I have to go there. I love a food hall, and it sounds like a great place. What else? Well, it's actually not too far from Burlington Arcade, which is a number one Christmas stop on your trip. It's always beautifully decorated with myriads of lights, but it also it was built in 1819, and it's one of the wow, mind like a steel trap. <laughs> Thanks to Mark. <laughs> um, and it's one of the last sort of remaining shopping arcades in the city. And it's filled with, I think you can probably talk a bit further about it. But. Well, what I, what I would say about Burlington Arcade is Burlington Arcade is a glimpse of Regency London. So Regency London was early 19th century when there was a king-in-waiting who was a Sybarite who just wanted luxury and indulgence. And the, the city reflected it, so these arcades appeared where wealthy people could go shopping away from the hoi polloi, away from the mud, undercovers, while policemen, beadles, policed them to keep the hoi polloi out. So some of them were bombed in the World War II, but a, a few survive, and Burlington Arcade is the most famous. It's still policed by its own beadles. It is full of little stores. Chanel, very controversially, opened five petit main stores for its suppliers. But if you go in there, you can buy sort of Scottish cashmere and handmade shoes. And it is a glimpse into the past. It's not like a luxury mall. It's something that happens on a smaller scale. The places it's, a mo- it's, a, it's a mall, but it's a one strip of tiny closet-sized stores. Mm. And it will reconfigure what you consider a mall can be because it is... 
exquisitely decorated. There's a la durée at one end. And you just wander down it and you want to be a Regency gentleman picking up his spats and, his, you know. <laughs> Are there any other sort of big collections of places that I should go, like a Harrods or a Selfridges or Fortnum and Mason, that are different from those? I would send America, every American I send to London, I would send to Marlebone because Marlebone is a part of central London that Americans have really embraced. It's the biggest anchor expat community of Americans in London is in Marlebone. It's very near where I grew up. And it was a shabby but genteel, arty neighbourhood for a long time. Edwardian, so most of the buildings are 100, 120 years old. In the last 20 years or so, it's become a very luxury shopping strip, Marlebone High Street. But for Americans, it's lovely to feel sort of at home because it is where you'll hear more American voices, but Americans who live there. Yeah. So that was the next thing I was going to ask is, are there any neighborhoods that are particularly good for sort of the small boutique kind of shopping, distinctive for that kind of thing? Well, I'm biased because I grew up there, but I will say Notting Hill. Notting Hill. Um, specifically Westbourne Grove and Portobello Road. Westbourne Grove, you know, you've got your sort of high-end boutiques. I mean, there's like a Ralph Lauren on there and then some sort of smaller, more one-off shops. On the weekend, it's brilliant for people watching. And I would say have brunch at Granger's. Wow, we're getting right down to the lunch place. I once saw David Beckham in there. So, so I got that to look forward to prime too. Prime celebrity spotting. Oh, Notting Hill is one of the most charming parts of London. Yeah. And it's not, it's very central, but obviously London is very spread out. So it'll take you a little while to get from, say, Burlington Arcade to Notting Hill. But when you get there, it's like a little village in the central. It, re- it really is. And then once you hit Portobello Road, I mean, you have these clusters of antique shops, which again are sort of from another era and they're fewer than they used to be so i would say definitely try and see them because you don't know how much longer they're going to be there for and then you can work your way through the market and you know it's everything from your like cockney fruit and veg sellers to beautiful pieces of vintage that you won't be able to find anywhere else to up-and-coming designers who have a stall every saturday and actually if you keep working your way up um because it's quite long You then hit Goldbourne Road, which is this very, it used to be very scrappy street that didn't have much on it, but it's really starting to grow. And I think everything that was cool on Portobello Road is starting to move up that way. And you're getting all these little shops and cafes opening up. Finally, I think has a bar there, which has been a long time coming. Okay, before we leave, bar versus pub, what's what's the difference? Does it matter? Yes. So I would say a pub is somewhere where you could feel comfortable going in with a newspaper by yourself and having a beer at lunchtime. And a bar is where you're going to meet your friends after work and have a cocktail. That's a great definition. So a bar is set up to be a social space, whereas a pub is more relaxed. and A pub's sort of like your living room. Mm. A pub is a community facility. If you look at all the British soap operas, the primetime soap operas, which are gritty dramas compared to the kind of craziness we have here, they are all centered around pubs because the community, the hub for the spoke of the community is the local pub. And that's where all the action happens. And they really are. It, it always fascinates me because every country I've been to where they've named a bar a pub, somehow it's not a pub because what makes it a pub is the way British people treat it. And when you go in, you realize that people treat it like their living room. They go in and they just want to break from home and take the paper. Mm. And there is something wonderfully welcoming about that. This is kind of a 
crazy question, but did it develop that way for particular reasons? Like, you know, the way that in, in Tokyo, for example, apartments are so small that you need public spaces to get out to. Is that is there some history behind the way the public house developed? From what I understand, it was partly that they were originally as much hotels as bars. Okay. So people lived there yeah. or stayed there. They were staging posts. If you were on your way to another town before the railways, you needed to stay at the pub because it took too long. Sure. So they were very much anchors for the community that way. And I think that openness of space, that's been retained. Okay. I will also say that if you find the really old ones, they have these wonderful little booths that you can sit in with these tiny doors from, I guess, when everyone was a lot shorter. And even I'm five foot three and I have to stoop to walk through it. And then you have this little private space where you can sit with your friends. Oh, and so have this Sunday is a door inside the, bu- inside the pub? Inside the pub. And you go into a separate room. It's a snug. It's called a snug. It's, it's called a, a snug. It's called a snug. And it's a VIP room, but for regular people. But for regular, very small people. Small once people. you get through. Right. But Brad, I have to ask you. Yes. What are your assumptions about, you know, working with us and knowing Britain and, you know, what are the things that you expect Britain to be like? And we can tell you sort of quick fire, yes, no. Well, I think I was going to ask you guys, what do I need to know, you know, about Londoners in particular, you hear so much about Parisians, you hear so much about people from other big cities. You hear much you hear a lot about New Yorkers before you come here, right? So I was going to ask you that. I mean, I think that I inhabit a kind of space in between, you know, what most Americans think probably cold, proper, you know, not very social. I think living in New York, I've had a very different experience from that. You know, I've known lots of people from London. And people from England generally, and have found them generally pretty social and pretty outgoing and, and a lot of fun. Now, those are the ones that come to America, like yourselves. So I may be getting a distorted picture of that. I would say, you see, if you ask an American, how are you? They say, I'm good, how are you? So the baseline is everything will be great until something goes wrong and then we deal with it. And you ask a British person, how are you? They say, can't complain, mustn't grumble. I've been worse. <laughs> And there's always a sense that, you know, you should complain prophylactically so that you can say, I told you so. God. That's very, is that is that a particularly British thing, do you think? Oh, I think it's yes. incredibly British. Definitely. Are there particular things about, so if New York is a distillation of the United States, a particular distillation of the United States, there are many others, but it's a particular distillation of American culture. In what ways is London kind of an intensification of Britishness? Good question. Or is it? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's an island unto itself. A lot of people think that about New York. I just am not of that opinion. I, what do you think? What do you think, Lala? I think it's more linked to the rest of, at least England, because remember the United Kingdom is four countries. Yeah. But at least the rest of England, I don't know if culturally there are the radical differences that you can find in a continent-sized country like the U.S. from New York to Dallas. Compared, so you, you know, you have to remember that when you go to a city up north it's a two three hour train ride away it's the same as going from new york to somewhere in pennsylvania it's it's not very far at all so while there are obviously differences and london's such a sprawling giant city i think mark's right in that the differences aren't as stark at all but i do think what i always think about the difference between british people and americans 
If you go to a country where you don't speak the same language, if you go to, to China or to France, you anticipate cultural differences because the language tells you, oh, we'll be different. And it's almost that you're ambushed between Britain and the US because you assume that since we can completely communicate, we'll have all the same perspectives, all the same traditions, and they are very, very different. And I think it's good to be prepared for some culture shock, and often people aren't. Well, I want you to prepare me for the culture shock, but I would also say I feel like one of the things I'm anticipating is that I will be judged, but people will not say it. People will be extremely polite about it. <laughs> I will be judged for infringements and impolitenesses and various things that I'm not aware of, but no one will actually say anything. They'll just be silently judging me. They'll talk about it after you leave, though. <laughs> they will. Okay. <laughs> so am I right themselves. about that? Am I going to be judged? I, but you see, as, I, as an American, like it's going to be visible that see, I'm an American. I actually think, I think that is one misnomer that the British don't like Americans. I think there's this sort of sneery sense that some of the British look down on. And I actually think that when Americans go to London, they tend to be welcomed because most Americans go to London with a very open, enthusiastic, excited affect. British people may find it hard to evince that affect themselves, but being around it is very warming. Is that how you guys feel here? Every day. <laughs> Do you struggle with that? <laughs> you see, I, I, I mean, I, I'm more to a British person. The British people listening will laugh because I sound like Madonna to real British people because my accent is so bastardized by living in America for so long. Lale is a much better example of a real British person. She sounds much more authentic. We should give you like a paragraph to read. Just, just do a dramatic just reading. Do a, a dramatic some literature. Reading. <laughs> well, I will find that now when I go back to London. I'll surprise people with how friendly I am in a way that I wasn't before. It's sort of like I'm a golden retriever that's bounding up to them and wants to know everything about them. And they're sort of, all right, hold on. Hold on a second. British people are cats. Americans are dogs. Yes. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> Golden retriever is a great analogy. That's very accurate. Okay, so what are the culture shocks that I should be prepared for? Well, I'm married to an American, so I'm going to speak on behalf of when he came to London for the first time. And I will preface this with the fact that he loves a drink, but he was taken aback by how drunk people are in London. And if you're there in the week between Christmas and New Year, it's going to be very boozy in a very fun, rowdy way. Yeah, what's that going to look like? But I went to American college. I'm pretty used to like boozy. What? what well, you've what got to remember that, like? that the pubs close at 11, so you've got to get a lot of drinking in in a shorter amount of time. time. Wow. And there's no open. Where thing do to you go after 11 if you're not? Um, the laws have loosened up a little yes. bit. We we grew up around the idea that there was a last bell and you had to like pre-game before the last bell just to keep you going. But remember, there are no open container laws either. So you, can, so you, you can drink can, on the street. You can drink after, on the street. After 11, you just take it to the street. But, but it means that if the weather is good, for example, the pubs just spill but onto Lale the street. But already told us the weather's never going to be good. <laughs> Yeah, well, but we still stand outside in the rain. With an the drinking, the drinking uh, helps you tolerate the <laughs> exactly. terrible weather. But I think that's what else did your husband find? That's a really interesting observation because I think British people are far boozier. That um, I, I think he was he was surprised at actually how welcoming people were and how interested they were in him as an American. I think he found people a lot friendlier than he. I thought. don't. I don't find Americans very interested in me. I'm not very interested in me. You'll be fine. That's this, will be, this will definitely be a shock. Yeah, he was like, I've never been a novelty before. This is great. <laughs> Remember, you won't need 
I think this is one thing that I always notice. When you buy things in London, they will not ask for ID because British people do not have a national ID card. They only have passports. But they will check the signature on the back of your credit card. So if it's rubbed off, you need to order a new card because if there is no signature, they will be very suspicious. I don't sign any of those. I should sign them them. now. There's a chip and pin system there, but our cards in America are not enabled for that. But there is no ID, so you need to make sure your credit cards are signed exactly as they're supposed to be. How far will I get with things like Apple Pay or Android Pay or things like that? That's a sort of semi-irrelevant question, but I'm just curious. Britain and Europe in general is far more technologically advanced than the US because when you introduce a new technology like Apple Pay in a compact country, rolling it out is cost-effective and efficient. America lagged behind because you have 300 million people in a continent where simultaneously you have to introduce it. You'll be astonished how much chip and pin and touch cards and Apple Pay, it's far, far more advanced. What about things like very practical things like getting around? Should I be taking the tube? Should I be taking Ubers? What should I be doing? Well, I'd say taking the tube is inevitable, especially now that there's the night tube, which is very exciting. And what I- have you heard? Is it is it going well? Well, I think it's it's happening, which is better than what it used to be. <laughs> Which means that if you're out late and you're, say, you're staying in West London. Drinking on the street. But you've gone drinking on the street in East London. Before, you would have been met with a very expensive taxi ride home or a very long and depressing journey on the night bus, which I wouldn't recommend to anyone. Whereas now you can hop on the tube, just like in a lot of major, it's other Fridays major and, cities. Fridays and Saturdays, right? It's yeah. Not, uh, no, it's not a week. It's, Friday, it is Fridays, it's Fridays and Saturdays. Fridays and Saturdays, and it's... Only on certain lines. I know the central line has it, which is kind of the key one anyway, because it shoots straight through the center of the city. So, we both grew up on the central line, so we're just biased. Yeah. But it's the red one. And it's the red one you'll see in the center of the map. And essentially, if you stick on that line, most of the key sites are available yeah. from one of those. Okay. The other thing I think is really important about public transport that people are often not prepared for, the buses in London don't take cash. You can't pay the bus driver. You need to go to a tube stop, one of the tube stops, and buy one of the, it's called an Oyster card. Londoners have lots of different ways of doing it, but as a tourist, you need to buy an Oyster card, which will cost you £5, which will be refundable the day you leave. You can you can change it back in. But you want to fill that with value, and it will debit it. But all of the double-decker bus you're going to want to ride as a fun experience, you can't pay cash. You need one of those cards. And it's really frustrating to be standing at the bus stop and, and not find out be able to yeah. get on. Yeah, that's a and, great tip. And I will say as well, pay for a week unlimited on it rather than continuously topping it up because the tube is really expensive. And you might actually find there's even an occasion in which if there's a group of you, it's cheaper to take a taxi than it is to take the tube. Oh, really? Okay, I had a couple of other questions. Where are you excited, Brad? I hope we're exciting. I'm, I feel like we're I'm really I feel like we're excited. kind of we're sort of scaring you. No, how I'm really excited. I don't think, but I don't think we, I don't think we've covered we haven't covered a whole lot of territory here. I, I feel somewhat prepared, but I want to know where I sh- where should I be going? What are these sort of emerging neighborhoods? Where should I be thinking of going to sort of experience cresting London, if you want to think about it that way? What are people talking about? Where's the buzz right now? Well. East London is the obvious one, which spans from Shoreditch and Spitalfields, which is sort of borders the city where the financial centre is. And then that sort of sprawls up through 
Dalston and up to Stoke Newington. Dalston especially is sort of the grittier, up-and-coming area where you've got a lot of 20-somethings renting apartments and lots of one-off bars and shops and restaurants, I'd say. Actually, one place that if you are in East London and you're in the Spitalfields area, you should probably go and have dinner at St. John's. Is it St. John's? Bread and Wine. Bread and Wine. Which is a great place and is definitely a must. Is this the this is the Saint John? No, no. that bread and wine is the more affordable offshoot and is also in a much more appealing place because in order to explore that bit of central London, Dawson's great, but it's really hard to get to yeah. because it doesn't have a tube. Get on the central line, our trusty red central line, and go to Liverpool Street Station, which is one of the biggest stations in London. It's right by the City of London, which is London's Wall Street. Sure. But it's also by what was once a very poor part of London. Uh, was originally a very Jewish neighborhood when I was growing up, Brick Lane, Spitalfields. It's now a lot of, it's quite South Asian, there's amazing Indian restaurants, but you have a lot of hipsters. And Old Spitalfields Market, which Lolly was just talking about, is an amazing menswear hub. There's lots of fantastic menswear stores there. And it has been transformed. St. John Bread and Wine is around there. And it is architecturally, if you walk down Fashion Street, you walk down Fournier Street, where Kira Knightley lives, and Gilbert and George and Tracy Emin, you're going to be surrounded by chic celebrities and on the subject of Gilbert and George every evening about six they go to the same Turkish restaurant one of them walks and the other takes the bus and then they reunite at the restaurant so if you see either of them in their tweed suit it's one half of Gilbert and George okay Gilbert and George who are Gilbert and George the artists Gilbert and George they live on Fournier Street, a few blocks down from Kieran Island. Okay. Uh, but I would also, if I could add one other place I would suggest, I love Spitalfields, Old Spitalfields Market and Shoreditch. I would also suggest that one of the loveliest experiences as a North Londoner, London has a big divide between the North and South. And as a North Londoner growing up, I thought, well, I wouldn't live in South London until North London's full. Well, yeah, as a West Londoner, I mean, south of the river, well, not well, an option. It's not It's not really London, <laughs> is it? It's sort of like people who grew up in Manhattan would never think of going to Brooklyn. Brooklyn. And now, in much the same way as it's been more embraced, South London, especially along the riverbank, has had an incredible renaissance in the last... 10 years. Yes, which actually reminds me that you have to go to Borough Market, which is a fantastic food market just by the river. I'm spending this entire podcast just writing things down, <laughs> which is why we had it. That's, I hope it's useful. No, but I agree. Borough Market's beautiful. And the whole, the south, the southern bank of the Thames, you can now walk along. So you can see Tower Bridge. There's the London Eye, that enormous wheel. You can have this wonderful glimpse into old London on your foot. And then you can also go to Bermondsey, which is a, a formerly down at heel part of southern London, close to the Thames, that now has Old Borough Market nearby. It has incredible galleries, and it's really rejuvenating. And I think that's the next Spitalfields or Shoreditch. Yeah. What, what do, you, do you think? Definitely. I'd say the people that I know who living in London at the moment are all moving to Bermondsey and Peckham. Peckham is... Shoreditch 10 years ago. And so what am I going to Bermondsey or Peckham for? Well, you're going for Borough Market, okay. primarily. Okay. And you're going to White Cube. The, you know, the gallerists White Cube have an enormous space in Bermondsey that opened three or four years ago. And to give White Cube a bit of context, Jay Jopling, who owns it, is responsible for bringing Damien Hirst's shark to the public realm. 
So he's a how very famous gallerist. <laughs> We're not sure how we feel about it. But it's a very, when, when Winecube opened its site down there, it was a real sign that, and it's an enormous site. It's like a, the size of a contemporary art museum. So that gave a real anchor to Bowensy High Street. And you just get, it's a lovely part of London. And I think, especially as a visitor, if you wander around Bermondsey for a day, even if you spend five days going to all the real blockbuster sites, you feel like you've snuck into a little insider corner that not everyone is going to see. And it feels very like Londoners when they think no one is watching. <laughs> That's great. I want that. <laughs> Where should I be eating? Oh, and I, so we many are a family of okay. food, foodie type people. I will own that. Well, I will say that you, if you're a fan of Indian and Pakistani food, you need to go for a curry. Okay. And Brick Lane or Whitechapel is the place to. Is Any the particular place to go. favorites there? Um, well, there's one place. It's, it's pretty low key, called Tyabs which is in Whitechapel, and it started off as this tiny, tiny little restaurant. I think it was in, like, the 70s. Um, same family still runs it, but it's expanded, and it's taken over sort of, like, the next three buildings along. And it's this real warren of rooms, and it's BYOB. It's the best curry I've, I've ever had. And that is, I think you've chanced on something. I think people think British food is terrible. And that's partly because what Britain always did very well was desserts, which we don't eat very much anymore, trifle, whatever. And British people overcooked vegetables, absolutely. But the one thing that Britain can lay claim to is really embracing South Asian food. The, the incomers from the empire, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, that is unarguably the best food, South Asian food you'll find outside of South Asia is in Britain. Mm. And if you don't go to like a crazy little curry house and sit there and eat the food, you're missing out on one of the best things about London. Yeah. Okay. What about, I think that it's been a few years now that people have exploded this myth about British food not being good. So what about some of the places that I should go to have some of that more experimental or sort of interesting British food that is not just from sort of South Asia or whatever. If you want fancy food, you go to Heston Blumenthal's restaurant dinner, which is at High Park, close to High Park Corner. That's the molecular gastronomy, Heston yeah. Blumenthal, the yeah. Willy Wonka of food. Yeah. Not my cup of tea at all. I think it's a hilariously depressing and exhausting to be thrilled by every dish that's put in front of you. I just want to eat it. And often there's 12 courses. And the dinner is a really long time. I would suggest that places, you know, Soho's a great place to explore full of little restaurants run by really good chefs. People like Jason Atherton, who is the new Gordon Ramsay, he's a bit of a bad boy, very talented. He's got an amazing shoe collection. Uh, he has a restaurant in the Edition in London, which is just north of Soho on Oxford Street in Fitzrovia. I would go to Jason Atherton's restaurant, the Burners Tavern. That's an amazing place for lunch. Okay. And it does look, it's- it's For lunch. It's decorated like a country house. It's very expensive in the evening. I think it's worth going for lunch. Okay. On the opposite end of the scale, I'd say, if you really want some just sort of classic English sort of novelty, I'd go have afternoon tea at the Wolseley. It's on Piccadilly. And, you know, it's scones and clotted cream and tiny little cucumber sandwiches and all the trimmings and the Wolseley's 
beautiful and it's white tablecloths and it's, yeah and especially at Christmas time it would just be like a wonderful wonderful place to go sit for a couple of hours and Lolly's pointing something out it's very interesting there, there are in New York there's Keith McNally who's a restaurateur who manages to make Balthazar places like Balthazar feel like great restaurants and also a great scene mm-hmm. in Philadelphia we had Stephen Starr who's now spread across mm-hmm. the country and he's a real charming restaurateur where you go for the food and the way that it just makes you feel mm-hmm. Corbin and King who own the Wolseley and another set of restaurants high end low end whatever they are across London they are an unmissable experience because you feel like you're part of the in crowd just by dining there and you don't feel out of place you feel that somehow when you're at the Wolseley you'll see Joan Collins and she'll wave at you and you will think, oh, okay, hello. And they're wonderful places. And they're very British. They're very Central European food or French food, whatever. But they have a British hospitality that I think is incredibly welcoming. What about this notion of the gastropub, which I think we've adopted, I don't know, correctly or incorrectly in the United States? I mean, to me, the gastropub feels very sort of, it's almost slightly dated at this point, sort of circa 2000 and yeah it was huge in the 2000s and then I feel like as London's become more of a foodie city and it's sort of hit its stride they've become less important and I think a lot of the gastro pubs are just the same you're going to get the same thing yeah but the reason I would encourage you to eat in some of the gastro pubs is if you go as a family what people forget is you can take children into a pub so there is much less control. You're not your five year old is not going to be offered a pint of beer, but you can take a family and yeah. have a Sunday lunch and a Sunday roast in a pub. And there's something very welcoming. Again, it's a community center. So I'd go to a gastro pub more because if you're a family, it's a lovely way of everyone being part That's of true. it. Like my family spent Christmas Day lunch in a pub last year in Wales, and my very small three-year-old cousins were there and my 89-year-old grandfather was also there and it is that same thing it's a place for your whole family and actually I sort of lied a bit about the gastropubs because my favorite restaurant is the cow in Notting Hill which is it's two floors it's a very quite small pub downstairs and then it has a sort of dining room on the upper floor and it's seafood and bangers and mash and guinness again there's great people spotting um i was there a couple of years ago and kate moss and stella mccartney were smoking outside and then unless you see kate moss you haven't lived in london you know (laughs) she's 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 part of the fixture but portobello road you're basically stepping inside kate moss's mind and you think she will be here picking up some gorgeous piece of vintage clothing to be casually paparazzied in good to know okay so you mark you just touched on something i was going to ask you guys which is i'm bringing my nine-year-old son along on this trip is there anything i should know or plan especially for him The tube will be very exciting. I think what people underestimate is how beautiful the London tube is. It's very clean, disarmingly so compared to many metros around the world other than Tokyo's. It's also very deep and tunneled down, and it's a real adventure. And most children I've taken around London who aren't from London find the tube as much of an exciting thing to do as whatever the destination is. Uh Great. To your point about the tube, if 
you make the terrible mistake of deciding to take the stairs in certain stations, you'll realise quite how deep down the tunnels are. But it is really quite fun because there's these tiny, narrow, spiral staircases. Often you'll see someone actually sitting down on a step and having a break because they're so high. But there'll be this very, very British announcement that tells you how many steps there are to go up. And the equivalent, it will be the equivalent of like a 15-storey building. And you'll be a quarter of the way up. Wow. That is impressive. But with children, I think one of the loveliest things to do in London... In the 19th century, Queen Victoria's husband master-planned a small part of London in South Kensington and created a hub of museums that are within spitting distance of each other and are beautiful buildings. The Victorian Albert Museum, named after him and his wife, the Natural History Museum, Exhibition Road. If you take any child to the Natural History Museum in London, it's startlingly amazing because it is 19th century specimens, probably quite illegally brought back, but the dinosaur skeletons are unbeatable. And in the same way, the British Museum, which is free, is the best assortment of mummies outside Egypt. People might argue that maybe some of them need to be sent back, but for now, they're in London. One of the nice things about the museums being free as well is there's a really good shortcut you can take through the British Museum Rather than walking around it, you can actually just go through a back door, walk through its amazing ground floor displays and then just come out the other side and just carry on on your way. It's really magical. So it's like a very quick tour through yeah, exactly. part of the museum. Is your son a big Harry Potter fan? Will it be he is. platform nine and three quarters at oh, King's Cross? Oh, yes. Because there isn't a platform nine and three quarters at King's Cross. That's he will be terribly sign. disappointed. But there is a sign. What is lovely? I think that's another thing. That Although there isn't that platform... In a wonderful way, King's Cross has embraced the idea that there'll be visitors. So he will get to have a Harry Potter moment, even if he doesn't see Harry. Okay, that's great. Also, Uh. one of my favourite places in London, which is sort of part of Regent's Park, is um, Primrose Hill, which I actually think is where you get some of the best views of the city. And if you and your son wanted to be, you know, in the parks, walking around, it's actually very close to London Zoo, but... You go up Primrose Hill and you can see just sort of a panorama of the whole city. And when it's cold and you can sort of, you know, go and have like a hot Sunday lunch after. And And I think you're pointing something out, which is that that the vista across London, it's actually very hard to get it because London is quite built up and it's quite flat. So when you're on Primrose Hill, it's a hill, and you can look back across the West End, that bit that everyone visits, and you get a sense of how vast London is, and it is vast. (laughs) And the parks, I think you you point out something else, which is, I think is often overlooked. Because London obviously was, was a royal fiefdom, and was part planned for the royal's convenience, there are lots of lovely parks that they wanted to go hunting or strolling in that we can now use. And Regent's Park, which is a Regency-era park planned much like Burlington Arcade in the same time, is a beautiful manicured garden laid out for the king-in-waiting that now we can just wander around in, right in the heart of London. Central Park is one park. London has four or five of those. And they're all quite different. I think each one has its own personality, you know, You've got Regent's Park's one place and, you know, you can, you know, walk right by the enclosures of the zoo. I used to play hockey on one of the hockey pitches and you'd hear the lions roaring as my 
gym teacher was screaming at us to keep playing in the rain again. And then you've got Kensington Gardens and Hyde Park where you've got Kensington Palace and you've got the Serpentine River and you actually have the Serpentine Gallery as well, which is, you know, a really nice little art gallery in the middle of the park. And you also have the Peter Pan statue, which was my favourite place to go when I was little. And then you've got St. James's Park, which is the back of Buckingham Palace. And what exotic bird resides there? I feel like... Are we having a pop quiz? I don't know, actually. No, I think it's maybe, like a pelican or something. Re- maybe someone listening can tell us, because I know what you're talking about. There is some kind of crazy bird that lives there that can survive tweet the British the weather. Bird. Please, tweet us, tweet us the bird. Tweet, us, tweet us the bird. But that's, I think the parks are very... And they're a lovely, strollable part of London. And exactly as Lolly says, they're very different. So you chance on them right next to Piccadilly, there's suddenly this enormous park, which again is a legacy of the royals essentially master planning London to their own convenience. That's great. Well, you guys have given me a terrific list of things to do. Are there any things I need to watch out for? Any things that that I might make the mistake of doing that you would caution me against? Don't tip too much. Oh yeah, that's true. What's the policy? What's the the practice? Well, this is always really helpful, actually. Remember, the thing is, Americans, when they and we travel, are very worried that they're not going to stiff servers. Mm-hmm. It's a very important instinct to be good tippers. Yeah. In Britain, wait staff are fully waged, mm-hmm. so they are not living off their tips. So they're, it's more like Italy. That exactly, their tips are important, but you are not making the difference between whether they make their rent or not. So if you leave 10% at most restaurants, that's very generous. And don't ever be shamed or sort of Americaned into leaving more. Yeah, you'll never be shamed over your tips. But as a former waitress in London, I will say that whenever Americans gave me really nice tips, it was very appreciated. <laughs> and that's different, but I think it but I, I just I think it's very easy for Americans to feel rude leaving yeah. less than twenty yes. percent. And it's not rude. Well yeah. and also a lot of places tips are included in the bill. So you actually don't even have to worry about it. Is there there the equivalent of a coperta? Mark, like, do you have a? Not so much. I mean, it does. It's more that service will be included. But remember, these. The point is, waitresses, wait staff are waged much better than they are in America. Yeah. Obviously, it's not amazing wages, but it's more livable. And it's I, a profession. Do, it's a profession. So don't feel awkward leaving a smaller tip than you would instinctively leave. And actually, in some ways, I always think, you know, if you leave a giant tip, it feels like you're not adjusting to the culture. Yeah. Leave a giant tip if you had a great waitress, right. like Lale. But don't just that leave was a terrible. <laughs> but you got good tip. Oh, yeah. No, but yeah, I think that's a very and and you know also remember that I think you have to watch out in Britain where things are can be quite expensive. It's good right now that the exchange rate is so favourable for Americans, but black cabs are a treat, and they're a treat for British people too. Mm. Take one because they're beautiful, and the drivers are knowledgeable and professional and friendly and probably the most interesting people you'll come across. But they're expensive if you take them a long way. Oh, I will also say that probably don't ask people about Brexit because I think everyone's exhausted about talking about it. Don't mean politics, religion, sex. All all the standards. All of the things. (laughs) Don't ask about those particularly in London. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, I feel like my whole trip has taken shape here. So uh, why don't we bring it to a close? Everybody, thank you for tuning in. Um, thanks to you, Mark and Lale, for coming here and schooling me on your hometown. 
Everybody out there, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes and SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com. We are also on Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Please tweet us. I would love your suggestions about what I should do when I'm in London between Christmas and New Year's. Um, send feedback, review us on iTunes. All these things are great. Why don't we tell people where they can find you, Lale? Oh, you can find me at my mouthful of a name, which is at Lale Arikoglu. L-A-L-E for Lale, and then A-R-I-K-O-G-L-U for Arikoglu. And that's Twitter and yes. Instagram? And my Instagram is Lale Hannah, which is a bit easier. Yes. And you can find me on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood. Uh, with Mark with a K, Elwood with two L's. And we love hearing from you. I have to say, it's so great to get that feedback. And please tell us your favorite place in London. Tell us what we got wrong. It's great. Because I already know we've... I've forgotten so many places that I'm already remembering that I should have mentioned. So please, so please tell us. exactly help us and tell us what we've how we've led Brad astray because we'd rather know now than when he comes back. I would definitely rather know now than, <laughs> than when I'm there. And I'm at Bradrick. That's it. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>